This week's episode is another four minutes of threads. For new listeners, we look at the nuclear war film Threads, the greatest nuclear war film, and we study it in minute detail, four minutes at a time. Today we are starting from 20 minutes in. And let me tell American listeners who have Amazon Prime Video that Threads is available to stream on that platform. If only it was similarly available in Britain, but British listeners will have to buy a Blu-ray or DVD if they want to watch it. I do wish the BBC would upload it to iPlayer, as they did recently with uh, The War Game, an equally controversial nuclear war film. Threads is an absolute treasure, one of the best things the BBC have ever done, and it should be out there. So let's get to it. Let's look at our four minutes of threads, starting at the 20 minute point. We start with Jimmy and Bob in the pub, which is of course the Nottingham House in Sheffield. Earlier, Jimmy had been boasting to his dad up at the allotments that this night out was going to be some night and he was really looking forward to it. But now that he's here, he seems a bit downcast and miserable. Bob is full of energy. Bob's getting the drinks in and eyeing up the girls at the bar. But Jimmy can't get into the mood and he's all hunched over his pint watching the news. In previous scenes and threads, characters had often ignored the news, which of course was frustrating for us because we know that something dreadful and awful is happening. And if you would only pay attention to the boring old news report, you might realise and do something. Although what on earth can they do about nuclear war? But now, now that we're at this relatively late stage, the characters have begun to pay attention to the news reports. Except Bob, of course, who only cares about the booze and the birds. But now Jimmy is paying attention to the news, as is everyone else in the pub. Now, at this late stage, everyone cares because everyone knows that war is slouching towards Sheffield. But Bob isn't worried. Uh, When he does talk about the war, he has a fatalistic approach. He tells Jimmy, oh, well, if it happens, I want to be drunk and right underneath it. And while Bob is all about the jokes and the banter, Jimmy is downcast and weary, both about the (laughs) oncoming end of the world and the oncoming marriage and baby. I think Jimmy dreads both of them equally. And in this pensive, pessimistic state of mind, he delivers another one of those quiet and understated, but very... Prophetic lines which pop up quite a lot in threads. Bugger, it's all these family responsibilities. You're acting like a married man already. Not for long now, you know. You might as well make the best of it once you can, haven't you? Chucking these two birds up there. Last chance you'll get. Anyway, if we are going to cop it, Oh, forgive me, we have two prophetic lines there. Jimmy moaning that it won't be long now, you know, before he's married, of course. And then Bob chiding him to go and flirt with the girls because it might be the last chance you'll get. If I was a dour and humourless person, I might make a comment there about men likening marriage and commitment to the horror and devastation of nuclear war. 
by Wundt. In our next scene, we leave the warmth and chatter of the pub and we re-enter Sheffield Town Hall. Clive Sutton, the council leader, and the man who will run Sheffield after the bomb drops, is working late. When we saw him last, he was making his early preparations for post-war chaos, but was doing it in a distinctly pre-war way. He was cheery and chirpy. He was busy yapping on the phone, accepting cups of tea from the secretary, making wee jokes. And he was smartly dressed like a middle-class, middle-aged man of 1980s Britain. Now it's all looking very different. He's in a dark office, sitting in a dim, sickly pool of light from his desk lamp, and he's tapping away at a calculator. And we see lots of scribbled sums on a notepaper on his desk. Working late then, doing the arithmetic of Armageddon. How much fuel do we have? How much food? How many hospital beds? And the darkness of the scene, uh, and the fact that he's in his shirt sleeves, no longer dapper and smart, but working in his shirt sleeves with his collar askew, that all suggests that these awful sums just will not add up. However you do them, however you show you're working, even if you remember to carry the four, the result is always death. Now, the fact that Clive Sutton is working in a dark office tells me that the office has closed for the night. Everyone else has gone home. And that's an interesting point because, and here we'll go off on a little nuclear detour, to have a government building in darkness was the opposite of what the Soviets would have expected in the run-up to nuclear war. Skip back through my podcast archive and you'll find an episode on Operation Ryan. Ryan was a top-secret Soviet plan in the early 80s to actively watch for signs that the West was preparing a nuclear first strike. Andropov, uh, then head of the KGB, was certain it was coming. He was, of course, absurdly paranoid and was convinced NATO was going to launch nuclear war. And so he ordered agents in the West to watch for obvious signs that we were planning war. The obvious signs they were told to look for were things, of course, like troop movements and unusual activity at military bases. But it's on the civilian side of life that Operation Ryan gets interesting. One of the signs that Soviet agents were told to look for was the price of blood increasing. The KGB must have figured that we'd be stockpiling blood in anticipation of war, and so donors, when they turned up at the centre, would be able to get a bigger fee. Of course, they didn't realise that in Britain, people give blood free. It's done as an act of kindness or benevolence. You don't get money for it, At the most, you'll get a cup of tea and a custard cream. But Operation Ryan is relevant to this late-night scene in the council office because another sign agents were told to watch for was lights burning late at night in government buildings as the staff stay late at their desks plotting and planning a nuclear first strike. But in threads, it seems that everyone else in the town hall has gone home And that's why poor Mr Sutton is at his desk in the dark. 
Of course, this scene might be taking place at his home, but I think he's still at work because he's still in his shirt. He hasn't changed into his, what do they call it these days, loungewear? A nice fleecy hoodie or something? He's still in his shirt and he has an ugly functional office lamp on his desk. So I don't think he's at home. I think he's still at the town hall. So if spies were watching Sheffield Town Hall as part of Operation Ryan in 1984, they'd have seen the whole building in darkness. Apart from one tiny little desk lamp light from poor old Mr Sutton's office. The next scene would have been very interesting to Soviet agents under Operation Ryan as it concerns military activity. It's dark and Jimmy is in his car up on the moors with a girl, so Bob's plan to chat up them two birds in the pub has obviously gone well and they are startled out of their canoodling by the sinister rumble and flicker of army trucks going by on the move at the dead of night. It also shows us, of course, war barging in and interrupting civilian life even its most private and intimate moments. It seems there's nought that can't be interrupted by a big giant truck. Our next scene has a more innocent form of ordinary life, shopping. It's Saturday, 21st of May, and the centre of Sheffield is busy, as it should be on a summer Saturday. Although a lot of the shops we see in the background of shots do seem to be closed. Perhaps that's because this was 1980s Sheffield, a city undergoing a lot of hardship in the 80s, as were many industrial British cities. Maybe it's meaningless and perhaps the scene was simply filmed on a quiet Sunday when the street would be empty. That's my dad phoning me. Um, Or, if we do want to read some meaning into it, perhaps it's because Sheffield in the film is now in a state of emergency, and so non-essential businesses have been closed down. We know, of course, that food shops and pubs are still open, but maybe the government have ordered other retailers to close. Food shops would stay open, of course, because they are unessential. We've seen that throughout the coronavirus pandemic. Many shops in the British High Street have been shut down, but food shops and even little news agents have always remained open because they're essential. And so perhaps in the countdown to nuclear war, the government would keep food shops open for obvious reasons, but maybe they would also be keen to have the pubs still open to keep the population occupied. Bread and circuses, that type of thing. And in the midst of all the shoppers, we see one of the director's favourite things to focus on. Babies. Little nippers. Little rosy-cheeked innocents. We see plenty of babies and toddlers in the following minute being pushed around in buggies, all bundled up in their padded suits and bobble hats, obviously enjoying some typical northern summer weather there. One of my previous episodes called Windscale and Atomic Milk mentions how we see milk and milk bottles a lot in threads, symbolising, I suppose, goodness and health and wholesomeness all of which is about to be wrecked, of course. Well, the many glimpses of young'uns here do the same thing. They're representing innocence, but they're also representing loss 
Because here is the future generation all about to be snuffed out. God, this is a cheery podcast. As we see these busy streets, a news report tells us that we're sliding further towards war. There has been no response to the US ultimatum to the Soviets that they both withdraw forces from Iran. And of course, that moment of uh, an enemy or potential enemy ignoring an ultimatum has a resonance for many, particularly in Britain, some of whom watching threads that night of broadcast in 1984 might have remembered a news broadcast from 1939 about a similar ignored ultimatum. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Back to our busy shopping street in Sheffield and along comes a protest march. Protesting, of course, against war and nuclear weapons. Although it's a bit late in the day to be demanding an end to nuclear weaponry, lads, a couple of days before the war starts. Your time might be better spent digging a hole or planning a quick and painless way out. But as the marchers stream past, we zoom in on Ruth. Poor, pregnant Ruth, who has no idea that her fiancé was having it away up on Moor last night, and no idea that her little baby is going to be raised in a dark and poisoned world to become a grunting savage. And you think you've got problems. Ruth is, with another nod to babies, standing in the doorway of mother care as she watches the march go past. Mother care, for those who don't know, is a baby shop selling prams and cots and romper suits and all that stuff. All that soft, fleecy, cosy stuff which Ruth's baby will never have. In fact, if you want to dig really deep and look for some symbolism in all these little glimpses of babies... There's a poster of a baby over Ruth's shoulder as she stands in the doorway of mother care and it looks as though the baby, perhaps in one of those prophetic moments we get in threads, it looks as though the baby is wearing a black armband, a symbol obviously of mourning. Footballers still do it these days um, when they're out on the pitch. So it looks as though our little baby in the window of mother care has a black armband on. But I think it's actually just a strap from their baby high chair. But we can read it that way if you like, that even the babies on posters in the window of mother care have donned little black mourning bands. Now, do you ever have that horrible claustrophobic feeling that you're trapped? Well, that's where our four minutes ends, with the government trapping the population in the country. The exits are sealed and we're locking the doors and hunkering down for war. 
The government has taken control of British Airways and all cross-channel ferries. They say it's a temporary step to help move troops to Europe. Thousands are stranded at Heathrow and Gatwick. And the Royal Navy is to guard the North Sea oil rigs. The MOD says it's a prudent precautionary measure. By this point in proceedings, the government no longer cares about you. Do you want to use planes, trains and automobiles to flee? Yeah, well, tough. They belong to the government now, and they will be put to use, which benefits the government, not the population. Even the roads themselves will be denied to you, as we'll see later in the film. The resources of Britain now start to be severely restricted and rationed as the great, big, awful inhalation of breath begins. I hope you've enjoyed our four minutes of threads. As you all know, it's a film I'm obsessed with and which sparked my interest in nuclear war. And yes, I first saw it when I was a toddler, when I was three. So my whole life practically has been marked and shaped by this film. Remember, if you have any questions for me... You can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or Facebook under Nuclear Britain. And before I go, let me say thank you to my patrons who support the podcast with a donation each month. My latest patron is David Daly, who joined during the week. And I got that lovely email notification telling me a new patron had signed up. So thank you, David, for your support. And let me also thank the following patrons. Tom Higgins, Holly Seddon, Ed Carter, The No Name Kid... Adam Gilmore, Craig Bushman, RMN Behaving Badly, John Haynes, Yannick, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan and Peter Lee. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast and want to offer a donation each month, please take a look at my Patreon page. You'll find it at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. 